Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and you are? Susanna Greer, Joe's favorite colleague. You are definitely my tied for favorite colleague. And if I worked at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, I think I'd have a really hard time choosing my favorite colleague. I think two prime contenders are on the pod today. Dr. Ava Hernando. She is a professor in the Department of Pathology, and she's assistant dean for research at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And Thalys Papayanakopoulos. He is associate professor in the Department of Pathology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Susanna, this was really a treat, getting two amazing scientists from NYU Grossman School of Medicine to talk to us a bit about their different approaches to important problems in cancer research. You know, the reason that we wanted to talk to Ava and Felice is that while their research is is quite different, we could see a commonality, and that is that Ava studies this incredibly complex and challenging question that it's so interesting and frustrating that we still don't have an answer to, and that is why why does some cancer cells metastasize? Why do some so a tumor is growing and have a bulk tumor formation and then some cells break off and go on this journey and move through the bloodstream and then establish a new tumor site? And why does that happen? And there's so many different challenges those cells go through. So we're going to talk to Ava about metastasis and especially in the model that she uses in melanoma. And then Felice is in a, a similar situation, studies lung cancer, and he's studying the cancer genome, which in a similar way to metastasis, where you're thinking about all the complexities of the decisions that cancer cells make along this journey, this metastatic journey, leaving the original site and moving to the new one. Felice is studying in lung cancer have all these different mutations, right? Hundreds, hundreds of different mutations. Which, which ones matter? Which ones are actually driving the formation of the tumor? And so how do, you, how do you find that needle in a haystack? And so to me, there's some similarities in their research that I really wanted to talk to them about. And I was so excited as you said, to talk to the two of them because they're at such a, a wonderful institution that supports collaboration. And you could hear their excitement and uh, just camaraderie in their voices. So I think you guys are gonna love this podcast. So let's listen. Good morning, Ava, how are you? Good morning, Zasan. Very good, thank you. How about you? Ah, doing great. So excited to have you with us and your colleague, Felice, welcome. Hi, Susanna. Good morning. Good morning. So the two of you have joined us from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. This is fantastic. Well, Ava, if you and the lease are ready, we're going to dive right in. Right. Do it. Okay. All right, Ava. So I want to help our audience understand all the things and reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you today. So Let's talk a little bit about metastasis. Um, so one of the things that's so frustrating about cancer cells is, is really what makes them so different than 
normal cells. So let's back up a little bit. So for the most part, when we have cancer cells in our bodies, they grow and divide and grow and divide and stay kind of in the same place. But a few of those cells are these renegade cells and they do something really different. They find a way to leave that bulk tumor and they go on what I guess we could just describe and some survive and some don't, but survive are a huge challenge for us clinically because they have accomplished this process that we call metastasis because they can now form a new tumor and a new site. And these new tumors, these new metastatic growths often turn out to be the most deadliest and the most challenging forms of cancers to treat. So one of the things that's so frustrating to us is that we still understand so little actually about why this process happens. So this is why I'm super excited to talk to you. You're an expert in this space. So let's start here. Why why do you think cancer cells metastasize? So as you know, Susan, when uh, normal cells start undergoing um, alterations that make them eventually cancer cells, they gain a number of properties. And some of the changes that they undergo are completely random, stochastic, right? They, they uh, have mutations that make them more unstable. They don't divide properly. And a lot of these alterations are actually uh, disadvantages for the cells. They, they will die. But in some cases, some of these changes confer them uh, additional capacities. It's almost a Darwinian selection, right? So most of what happens is going to be uh, negative for the cells and those cells will be selected, they will be, they will die. But in some um, uh, cases, those changes lead to a, the acquisition of a new advantage, like the ability to uh, invade locally the surrounding tissue and then reach to areas where there is more oxygen or more nutrients. So the cancer cells don't really have a plan to do all these things. They almost happen uh, accidentally, but by accumulating these alterations, they gain additional properties, more survival, more ability to migrate, to reach circulation, to arrive to a new distal site and then start growing there. So it's almost, you know, it's a, it's, it's a random selection, but unfortunately, in some cases, this process is efficient enough for the cancer cells to allow them to uh, survive in circulation and reach this cell site. And we know when, when this happens, then we have a, a metastasis and therefore a much more serious um, um, clinical problem to, to, to deal with. You know, I really love the way you describe that because it reminds me of a family, like we were going to go on a trip because you you describe the cancer cells as as they grow in their original location. We know that cancer cells are accumulating mutations and that many of the mutations are bad and not helpful and provide no real advantage. And so we might think of this as being a family 
like if, if my family was getting ready to go on vacation and we were just kind of randomly throwing stuff in the car because we didn't know where we were headed and we might throw in some beach towels and we might throw in a cooler and we might throw in some hiking equipment and we might all get in the car. And then these cancer cells, some of the mutations though, you said they're random and some of them might be advantageous. And so as these cancer cells have these mutations, some of them could be really helpful and help them to maybe better utilize oxygen and help them to grow and better utilize nutrients. And so what if my family, we ended up in the Sahara Desert? And so our, our beach towels wouldn't be super helpful, but maybe our hiking equipment would be. Um, so is that kind of a reasonable scenario to describe that it's it's not like the cancer cells making a plan um, to have these growth advantages, but sometimes it works out well for the cancer cell. And as you said, this this is not this is a huge challenge for us clinically. Absolutely, I think you summarized it really, really well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to convey. There is no um, um, evil plan by the cancer cells. It happens all a little bit accidentally, but there is a selection, obviously, because they are constrained by the environment. So they always are looking for a way to survive. And as they gain additional competencies or additional properties, they become more fit to reach distal organs, which are initially hostile for them. They are uh, foreign to them. This is not where they are usually um, residing, right, in their initial environment. But when they gain all these properties, now they are more fit to conquer um, distal sites that are um, foreign to them. Yeah, there are lots of different types of cancer cells that, that undergo this process of, of movement and setting up shop in different areas. We know this happens you know, with breast cancer and colorectal cancer and pancreatic cancer, but, but you study melanoma. So why did you, why did you choose to study metastasis and melanoma? So we think that melanoma is really an extraordinary example of a metastatic tumor. Because remember that melanomas are diagnosed in the skin as a few millimeter lesion, right? And stage two melanoma is less than two millimeters thick. And at that stage, even when it can be completely removed surgically, right? A, a dermatopathologist or a dermatologist has no issue to completely re resect the primary tumor. It's very tiny, you can get good margins. But still, even at that stage, a significant percentage of patients have the possibility of having a recurrence locally or a, even a years later will develop a metastasis. So it's really remarkable how these tumor cells from very early on gain the capacity to uh, invade locally the, the tissue, the skin, the dermis, reach the, the blood or the circulation and arrive to a distal site. Initially, they will be dormant at the distal site, but they, they will start growing. So we think that because of that, because of the fact that melanoma cells from very early stages have the capacity to metastasize, they represent an exceptional model to understand what are the mechanisms, what are the drivers of the metastatic potential. And, and something that we have um, uh, understood more recently is that uh, in the case of melanoma and some other primary uh, cancers, some of the cells can escape really from very, very early stages and arrive to the distal site while the primary tumor continues to grow. 
and they can have a divergent path. So we are trying to understand what happens at those earlier stages that makes those cells uh, so good at, at uh, leaving the primary tumor and arriving to a distal site. That's why melanoma is such a good model to study these processes. All right, thank you. Um, Felice, I, you are also just right down the hall, I think, from Ava, and you, you face a, a similar challenge in your research. So I'd like to I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how your research is is similar. Um, so as a community, we've generated just a, an enormous amount of data um, about the ways that cancer cell genomes, and we've already talked this morning about how melanoma cells um, began to generate all these mutations um, that may or may not help them to metastasize. So as a community, we know, we absolutely know that cancer cell genomes differ from normal cells, right? Mm -hmm. um, but just like we don't know which cancer cells will metastasize or why, we still, and this is so crazy to me, that we still don't really know which mutations that cancer cells have really matter in the end. So help us understand why is it so hard for us to understand what the cancer genome is telling us? It's It's been a major challenge, um, but I think um, the last few years especially, um, there's been major breakthroughs, um, technological breakthroughs based on our ability to do, um, to study how mutations in genes impact um, uh, tumor growth, impact the ability of cancer cells to grow, to acquire certain properties such as metastasis, which, which we just discussed, uh, such as um, ability to uh, eat nutrients more efficiently that you mentioned earlier, such as disguise themselves from the immune system to avoid recognition, etc. So, so there has been there's been great advances. However, um, you know, it's still a major challenge, and the issue is that just like in melanoma, in many other cancers, for example, lung cancer, which will uh, which we can discuss in detail, which is what my lab primarily focuses on, um, there's there's many, many mutations, so millions of mutations, and um, the combinations in which they occur in each patient can be, from patient to patient, can be completely different. So, uh, and the sequence at which they occur from one patient to another can be completely different. So, um, it's sort of a very daunting problem because you can't, you know, it's hard to essentially model this uh, in a in, a, in an, an efficient and robust way, basically, uh, to be able to really say this combination of all these mutations in this sequence that happened in this patient um, does this. So it's not it's not so simple. Uh, so we've been trying to sort of simplify the problem a little bit by asking the question, which of these mutations are the most frequent ones, right, across all, all patient populations of, of a given cancer type? Uh, so we look at the most common frequent ones and within the most frequent ones, we look at which are, which are the ones that tend to co-occur. Co so in the same patient, in, in several uh, patients, these sets of mutations co-occur and they occur together. Okay. 
So, uh, and then once we have an idea of that, then we can start start modeling that uh, using various animal models and, and start generating these mutations in these animal models and ask the question, okay, what do these mutations actually do in cancer cells? Do they promote certain properties? Do they make them, again, able to consume nutrients more efficiently, metastasize, et cetera? Um, but yeah, this has been this has been a major uh, major challenge. And in the past, it was just hard to do technically speaking in the lab. Uh, but with the emergence of this technique called CRISPR, we've been able to do, to um, take information from patients, so mutation information, and then model it in animal models much quicker. So be able to mutate genes that we think are relevant in human cancer, model them, um, mutate them. Uh, in, in mouse models, for example, and then see what they do in terms of the uh, properties of the of the cancer cells. So, um, so and that's sort of the the goal of this this idea of precision medicine, right? The idea that knowing which exists for cancer, but also for other diseases too, meaning uh, knowing a patient's mutations and then or uh, and then tailoring the medicine that that patient is going to get based on the mutations that the patient has. But in order to do that first, we need to understand what the mutations do, <laughs> um, and then identify uh, identify the properties that the mutations sort of promote in cancer cells, and then trying to target those, those properties therapeutically. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, for our listeners, you know, how do we really explain that? Because I, one analogy I, I was thinking of is that if we were to because what we're really doing is reading the language of cancer cells and what that language means. And so I was thinking that if you're reading a new language, you have to understand, um, you know, the meaning of that language. And so you are, you're looking for the impact basically of a mutation because you said you were saying, you know, does this combination of mutations that is occurring in a patient just because it exists does it matter? And so I was thinking, well, that's the same way that you would say, if you were trying to learn a new language, how would you understand if a new combination, if a combination of words mattered? So you might yeah. say, well, is this, does this cause, does this, if I'm learning a new language, does, is this an insult, right? If I were to, to, to say this group of words together, does this make someone angry or does this mm -hmm. make someone happy or does this make someone cry? And so that's really what you're doing is reading a cancer cells genome and saying, does this group of, of changes in a cancer cell give this cancer cell some advantage? And does this group of mutations, do we see that particular advantage occurring in lots of patients. And then if we do, um, could we somehow take advantage of that in a mm -hmm. uh, medicinal way to target that? And as you said, we now have um, some tremendous technological abilities um, that that we can use to, to find basically those patterns. So yeah. Yeah. And it it's sort of like, you know, going back to your knowledge, it's sort of like we need to translate what the mutations are sort of telling us like the sort of the um it, what the language of the mutations what is telling us right the the combination yeah. of the, and 
the sentences are translated and essentially once we translate, then we can go back and understand, okay, this is what they're telling us. So this is how we're going to target them sort of in a therapeutic way. Um, um, which actually, funnily enough, in, in our in in our uh, in our world, it's called translate. Also, so we want to translate what we find in the lab at, to the clinic, meaning what what we translate uh, when we translate what the cancer is telling us. Take that and um, uh, translate it to sort of a therapy in the clinic, basically. Yeah. All right. So we've we've talked about. Um, how you both have faced pretty similar challenges in dealing with enormous amounts of data. And so, the least I really would be interested to know why do you why do you study lung cancer? You you could ask these similar questions in lots of different cancers, just like Ava could have studied lots of different cancers around metastasis. Why did you choose lung cancer? There's a few reasons. The one first reason is because it's like is a is a major clinical problem. Um, it's an it's a number one cause of deaths, uh, cancer deaths in the in the U.S. and worldwide. So, but the uh, the other major reason I focused on, on lung cancer was because it was uh, from a genetic perspective, uh, in terms of mutations. Uh, this is one of the cancers that has the most mutations. So. Lung cancer patients have a lot of mutations in their in their tumors, and the mutations that one lung cancer patient can have can be totally completely different from another lung cancer patient. Um, and this, of course, poses a poses a major uh, a major problem um, because we need to understand you know what the mutations in one patient uh, do in terms of uh, the tumor, the cancer what properties promotes as opposed to another patient that has another set of mutations uh, and therefore it's it, the cancer in that patient can be completely different. So, so again, it's, it poses a major problem understanding what the mutations do. So that in a, in a challenge and I, you know, I was very interested in sort of uh, getting into into this, this research to, to, to decipher what mutations actually do. Um, what combinations of mutations do from patient from one patient to another? So, um, so that's one of the main reasons I, I focused on lung cancer. Um, and I think um, at the time when I started the, doing this this research, there were some major breakthroughs um, in uh, scientific breakthroughs that led to new technologies and new tools available to us to to solve this. This problem, or start understanding basically what do mutations do, start translating what they're telling us. You know, it's so interesting to me. You both work in completely different cancers, right? Ava's in melanoma, and Felice, you're in lung cancer, but you have really similar challenges, right? Lots and lots of mutations, cancers that can be very genetically different and present clinically very different. So I think our audience would would really be interested to know what is the biggest challenge that that you face. So Ava, let me ask you first. Where where are you and when you wake up in the morning, what are you just like, "Oh, if I could just solve this, we we would be in such a better place in this project." Melanoma, luckily, in the past, uh, I would say, 15 years, there has been a lot of progress. Uh, when I entered this field, 
2007, around uh, for 14 years ago, um, patients um, with metastatic melanoma really didn't have practically any therapeutic option. And the majority of the uh, treatments that were approved at the time were really not effective. So nowadays we have a lot of approved therapies uh, like targeted therapies, immunotherapy that are extremely effective in metastatic melanoma, but there are still issues, right? There are still patients that don't respond to these treatments or that they respond initially, but then they become resistant. Some patients uh, also don't tolerate some of these treatments. Immunotherapy is extremely toxic and can have life-threatening um, side effects. So for me, what I have seen in the field is that Yes, we have more options for the patients, and some of them can have control systemic disease, meaning control um, metastatic uh, 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 conditions, but still many of the uh, metastatic melanoma patients develop brain metastasis. So we think uh, my, my uh, interest now is actually focusing on understanding why melanoma cells are so good in colonizing the brain and how we can understand better that process and target that process and start uh, finding new ways of adaptation or understanding how melanoma cells adapt to the brain environment and how we can either prevent that or particularly target that. And uh, I think I would like to go back to something that Talis mentioned. So we have different patients, both lung cancer or melanoma patients that have different mutations and different combinations of mutations. But we know that mutations don't tell us all. Is how that information is being interpreted, is being read, that right. also influences the output, the outcome, right? We know that patients that have exactly the same genetic alterations, some of them will metastasize and some will not. So why make some tumors more prone to uh, metastasis or uh, to become more aggressive or more resistant to therapy is not just uh, based on the mutations that those tumors have, is in part due to, again, the way this information is interpreted by the cells and also by, by how um, cells communicate with their environment. Right. When I started working in cancer, I was just looking at the cancer cells. Now I know that this is a very narrow vision and I need to understand better how the cancer cells talk with their neighbors. In the case of the melanomas, how the melanoma cells communicate with the dermal uh, uh, components right, of the skin, like the fibroblast, etc. Or when they arrive to the brain, how they have to communicate with the neurons, the astrocytes. So understanding better those communications is critical because we can now not just target the cancer cells, but we can uh, see how the cancer cells hijack their environment, how they uh, co-opt the cells in the environment and perhaps target those interactions as a way to kind of uh, uh, cut the, 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 the resources that the troops receive, right? Kind of, you know, attack the, the, the uh, source of uh, nutrients attack the communications, uh, make the, the cancer cells more visible to the immune system. So I think as, as an investigator, uh, my dream is to understand better those interactions and see how we can attack them to make the cancer cells much more vulnerable and much more responsive to the therapies that we have and to new therapies. 
All right, Shalee, same question. So what's your biggest challenge? Yeah, so um, I think uh, by starting to understand now how, how mutations impact cancer cells, how they give them certain properties, we're also starting to understand that um, potentially they, the way they get to these properties and the sequence in which they acquire, they, they occur, the mutations occur might matter. So to put it, to go back to an analogy used earlier, so say cancer is a, is a family and it, you know, it, it goes, it goes somewhere um, to a, it drives, goes on a road trip and drives to a certain location, a certain destination, right? Uh, we don't fully understand how the cancer gets there in terms of like which road it takes, meaning so it, and say the mutations are acquired as the cancer cell that um, gets to this location, this new location, right? We don't know whether it took, uh, which road it took to that, to that new location, basically to the destination. So, and that might, that we think matters because potentially the sequence at which the mutations occur matters because often what the only information that we have is from cancer genomes is the endpoint, right? We have a snapshot at the end when a patient goes in the clinic and their tumor is uh, biopsied and then it's sequenced, then we know what mutations are there, but we don't know the sequence at which they occurred. And this can be happening over, you know, 10, 20 years, right? So, so we think the sequence at which these mutations occur is important, uh, and that's hard. It's it's hard to know in a, based on just genome sequencing, um, um, and we have to now use mo models to try and dissect that. And doing this experimentally is also not it's not easy. It's not easy to sort of model mutations sequentially. Right. So that's a major challenge we face. And, and again, we think this is relevant because we think the, the, the way the tumor evolved, the sequence at which the mutations happened is actually important for the properties that cancer cells have acquired, such as potentially metastasis, nutrient utilization, etc. So I'll offer up a challenge to you guys. You work, I'm assuming, close to each other or down the hall. Mm -hmm. And your research is so different, but yet it's so interwoven. And are there ways that you've thought about working together um, or ways that kind of in your wildest dreams you might be able to? Absolutely. And I think this is something that we are really promoting at NYU and among the entire uh, community of cancer researchers across New York City and the, the country, right? I think we, we uh, share reagents, we share uh, models, and I mean, think for instance, in particular to the, uh, in relation to the problem of brain metastasis, uh, there is a subset of lung cancers and uh, melanomas that are among the most uh, capable of metastasizing to the brain. So by uh, examining which share uh, abilities melanoma cells and lung cancer cells have to gain to um, adapt to the to the brain, we can start understanding, okay, these are the things that are common, so this must be important. And even though now we know that the genes that are altered may be different in um, uh, melanoma or in 
lung cancer, some of the pathways, some of the signals that have to happen, some of the adaptations that have to happen are common to different cancer types. So I think we definitely, by sharing uh, models, reagents, uh, techniques, uh, Thalys Lab is at, at the uh, um, really cutting edge of developing new technologies for introducing mutations or combinations of mutations in tumors, uh, in developing models that are more close to the you know patient um, a, a, the patient tumors, right? We we can by adopting some of the techniques that his lab and others are developing, we can uh, ourselves uh, benefit and, and produce similar models in melanoma. So uh, for sure, for sure, uh, we know that what we learn in a cancer type can be uh, extrapolated to others by sharing information and being const in constant uh, touch. Elise, if, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so um, I, I, uh, I talk to Eva very often. Um, so we're in the same building so and we even though we study different cancer types we face again similar challenges but also we're interested in so sort of similar sort of processes that the cancer cells um, um go through that we want to target hopefully understand and target therapeutically right so um such as metastasis uh such as um nutrient utilization and um, how the like how the cancer cells interact with their environment uh, with normal cells, uh, such as immune cells, for example. Again, these are pro pro issues that all cancer they're important in all cancers and definitely important for um, uh, for melanoma and lung cancer. And interestingly, you know, I think uh, we find that even though potentially the mutations may be different between lung and melanoma. Some of the fundamental properties that the that both melanoma and lung cells have to ha have to acquire in order to, uh, to to progress to to grow to metastasize are similar. Again, the the adaptation to their environments uh, and their ability to consume nutrients is one, and their ability to disguise themselves from the immune system is another, and their ability to metastasize. Um, and uh, so there's definitely, definitely a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap in how this happens in lung and melanoma. So we, um, so we, we, ha we do exchange, we do uh, often exchange models and we do exchange tools um, to be able to, to study these processes in both, in, in both lung and melanoma. And that's, that's one of the reasons, you know, I think uh, we have a fantastic environment at NYU is because of the fact that um, we're a very close community and we communicate very often and we discuss each other's science very often and there's often a lot of synergy and overlap and ability to to the to collaborate. Well, NYU sounds like just a fantastic place to work and we are so incredibly impressed with all that both of you are doing. Um, I, I really think our listeners would love to know how ACS funding has impacted cancer research and so Ava let's let's start with you. So for me um, ACS has a special place in my heart and in my career because my first grant as an independent researcher was the ACS uh, Scholar Award 
the first uh, grant that is given to junior investigators. And since that, you know, for me, that was a validation, right? That was the first grant that I obtained as an independent uh, um, uh, PI, as an independent investigator, and therefore is the recognition of your peers, of, of the importance of what you are doing, and gave me a lot of confidence to go on with my research and apply to other um, grant opportunities uh, successfully. So it will always have a special uh, place in, in, in my heart and, and in my career. Every time that I have been asked to participate in ACS grants or any event, I'm, I'm always trying to, do, to be there because I think ACS is doing an, a, an, a fantastic job and it really makes a, um, a very important mark in the career of the investigators. These career awards that are given to the junior investigators are fundamental to help them set up their, their, um, their programs. Uh, ACS is also able to accept more risks than other funding agencies, particularly NIH, and I think uh, that impacts the type of uh, research that can be done. is more bold, more um, uh, accept, accept, accepts more uh, risk than perhaps other agencies, and without risk there is no discovery, there is no progress. So again, I think I'm very grateful to ACS and uh, I, I think it's extremely important that it continues to make the impact that it's doing in the careers of junior investigators. All right, the ladies, let me ask you the same question. Um, is there a, if you, when you think about your ACS funding, is there a mark that you've been able to lead, leave on cancer research that you're like, you know, because of this grant from the American Cancer Society, I was able to initially show this, um, or it started my study in this area. Um, I think our listeners would love to hear that. Uh, similar to Eva, ACS was the first, funding was the first funding I actually got as an independent investigator. So it was, you know, it was fundamental for, you know, both my, uh, um, my, my my lab's research and the development of my career um, uh, and um, and it was instrumental in allowing us to understand um, how uh, particular um, types of lung cancer with specific mutations which is essentially a combination of mutations which is relevant to what we discussed earlier um, eat uh, nutrients, eat uh, sort of uh, sugar and sort of amino acids, protein from their microenvironment differently than other cancers that have other, other lung cancers that have other sort of sets of mutations. So we, we found particular mutations that make cancer cells eat certain nutrients from their environment more so than others. And so, and that led us to, to understand, okay, this is something we can potentially, uh, target therapeutically um, and this work has now led to several clinical trials basically in patients and fa uh, phase two trials in patients where this is actually being tested um, and the reason this was important is because for me two reasons one is that that field of uh, research was completely new to me I would I did not really going into this know that these mutations that we were studying were going to cause tumor cells to eat nutrients in a different way. That's just kind of where the research took us. Uh, so it was very new to me. It was challenging, but it was also exciting. Um, and 
it, it was also exciting because it actually led to something that hopefully will help patients um, at, at the end of the day. Um, but but also it was risky. So uh, so the, the fact that ACS was willing to fund this was was um, fundamental for our research. And the other reason was important is because at the time we were doing this work, there was a little bit of a and it still is um, and not there's not haven't been many therapies out there so far that um, target the ability of the tumor cells to eat nutrients. There's been a lot of hope in this and a lot of effort in this, but nothing's really panned out so far. So we're hoping that that our work has led will lead to something that actually will be um, successful in the clinic and translate in the clinic in terms of targeting the ability of tumor cells to consume certain nutrients and, and inhibiting that. So, so we'll see. Very excited. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this has just been so delightful. You both have such an easy rapport with each other, and I imagine working together must be a lot of fun. Best of luck to you, and we're so excited about all the fantastic work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Susanna. It was great to talk to you today.